Christian Medical and Dental Associations hope you enjoy today's chapel message. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't make New Year's resolutions. I have nothing against them. Statistically, we know that most people don't keep them after February, March time frame. But um, it may be life-changing for some. But in lieu of doing resolutions, a few years ago I adopted a strategy in which I sort of do an evaluation of where I am spiritually at the beginning of the year. I want to thank God for where he's brought me from, and I want to seek God for how I'm to go forward. And when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment, he made it very clear it's about relationship. First and foremost with the Father, and then with others. So if first and foremost important thing in our life is our relationship with God, I thought that was the place I needed to be evaluating my life at the beginning of every year and throughout the year, but purposely, intentionally at the beginning of every year. So I've been doing that and I sort of want to invite you to sort of peek in on what I've been doing and maybe you'll find it's something you want to do yourself. In fact, I think it's something you ought to do, not because I think so, because the Word of God says we need to evaluate these things in our life. What's your relationship with God? How's that going for you? Now, I want to give you a bit of a disclaimer. Uh, Isaiah 55 reminds us, For our thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your ways. Now, our understanding of God is woefully lacking full comprehension. Scripture gives us a lot of ways to try to understand something about God. A lot of illustrations, a lot of metaphors, there are constructs out there, but they all cause us to fall short of fully knowing God. We never should get to the point of being prideful to think that we know that. But certainly Scripture gives us enough knowledge of God to be able to trust, to obey, and follow His will in our lives. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Now we see through a mirror dimly, or through a glass darkly, as the King James says. And we know in part. You know, here's an example. You know, the, we are given to understand the relationship between God and Jesus as a father and a son. But it's not a father and a son that we know father and son in this life, in this world. It's a construct. It's the best hope we have for trying to understand that very intimate, important relationship they have. And God gives us enough insights into his self, his character, his might, his might and power and sovereignty and providence. He gives us enough insight into that so that we can have a relationship and that we can follow in that relationship. So let's look at these relationships. Uh, I'm going to there's seven of them that I'm going to talk about. Well, I'm, going to, I'm probably get through four of them today. Maybe, we, Lord willing, we'll look at some more later on. But seven ways in which we can relate to God. And it's not intended to be a doctrinal statement. It's not intended to be comprehensive. But generally, these things build on each other, and they help us get to the next level of relationship. So I really want you to just sort of pause on each one and say, where am I in this relationship? Is this where God wants me to be in this relationship? Because it's a stepping stone to get to other relationships. Evaluate your status as we go through here. So the starting point. We have a creator 
and we are the creature. That's the starting point. Genesis 1, in the beginning God created. In John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. And in verse 3, through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Knowing God as creator is really foundational to all the other relationships. Now, not all people accept this in our post-Christian, neo-pagan culture. More and more people don't believe in God. They believe in a distant God. A lot of people do, but not a personal God. And fewer and fewer believe in a God who is the creator. I remember a few years back, I was doing a interview, I don't remember on what topic, but the reporter was a bit antagonistic to the point of view. And in the middle of that, she just said, well, how do you know there's a God? Question I had not prepped for, but God in that moment gave me a response. They said, I said, well, you know, before today, I didn't know you existed until I got introduced to you. There was this long pause and then she changed subjects. <laughs> Though we have limited knowledge of God, we can know enough about the giver of life, the creator of the universe, and the author of truth to approach him and understand him as that. When I was working in Russia in the early 90s, it was a culture where at that time only less than 30% were identified as Christians in a church, most in the Orthodox Church. The other 70% had followed the communist teaching and they were atheists. They didn't believe in God. And it was sad to see the effect it had on people and on culture at that time. They were without purpose and without hope. Desperately without hope. And they were sadly sort of a, an empty slate to be written on by anyone that came in and promised them a little hope. And they'd often respond without really understanding what they would respond to. So a lot of heresies came into Russia at that time, not just the gospel. But they were mostly athletes. I remember um, the cosmonaut Tutov. Yuri Gagarin was the first one in space. And Tutov was a cosmonaut that followed him. And he went up into space and circled the earth and came back and reported, there's no God up there. C.A.W.A. Criswell, the pastor from Dallas, <laughs> commented that, well, if he had gotten out of his space capsule, he would have found him. <laughs> I remember I, I would go to universities and to medical centers and offer to give a scientific lecture. And the deal was I'd give a scientific lecture and they'd also let me give a spiritual lecture in which I'd present the gospel. And in one of these lectures, uh, it was a huge crowd they were sitting all the way right up in front of me. And I began to talk about the character of God and God being the creator. And there was this Russian woman sitting right in front of me. And she got vocal. She started waving her arms. And I knew enough Russian to know that she was saying, I don't believe there's a God. I don't believe there's a God. She was intimidating. I actually sort of walked away from her toward the door, knowing if I had, not knowing if I needed to run or not. But <laughs> God just in that moment gave me an illustration the illustration was of a time in the past when people thought, many people thought the world was flat. But there were some who set out to explore the world and they sailed around the world and came back and said, no, the world's round. But that testimony wasn't enough because there were some people that still believed the world was flat. But for those who had experienced that the world was round, 
they could not be persuaded it was flat. For now, someone who's never experienced God, that's what I told this lady, for someone who's never experienced God, it's impossible for you to convince someone who has experienced God that there's no God. So she got quiet. I went on with my sermon, and she and most of the people in that room that day prayed a prayer of confession of faith in Christ. She puddled the floor with her tears as she rejoiced in coming to know the God who created her through her son, Jesus Christ. We have a creator. That's the first place in understanding God and having a relationship with him. Do you know him as creator? I think you probably all do. So, second level in our relationships is that of a savior and a sinner. Knowing God as creator is important, but that's not a personal relationship. To begin a personal relationship with God, we need to know him through his son, Jesus Christ, as our savior. 1 Timothy 1, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Yes, we are all sinners needing to be saved. You know, growing up, I had a real faulty understanding of sin. And it was due to a legalistic church that just sort of taught that there were wrong things to do. And if you did any of them, you could lose out on heaven. That was sin. But the bigger concept of sin is taught in Scripture is that of missing the mark. Just being in the wrong direction, going the wrong way. You know, there, there are a list of things we shouldn't do. And if you look carefully and analyze them, they're all things that either hurt ourselves or hurt someone else. And God doesn't want them to do it, do it because it hurts us or it hurts others. That's why he says these things shouldn't be done. And um, I thought that that was just the only thing that matters. Just don't do those things. But, you know, also not doing the things we should is sin. It's missing the mark. It's not being on the right way. This story became very apparent to me when... Um, I was newly married to Gay, and we took off and drove cross-country uh, to get to the West Coast so I could put our car on a boat, and it was going to be shipped to Hawaii, where I was going to be stationed for four years. And so we traveled across country, and we stopped in some places along the way, and we stopped in Sequoia Forest in California. And here I was, an Eagle Scout, going to take my wife out on a hike through the Sequoia Forest, and we were having such a joyful day. And then suddenly I realized, I'm not sure which way is back. And we've been traveling so long, there's no way we're going to get back before it's dark. And here I am taking my new bride out to get her caught in the dark in the forest. And we're either going to freeze to death or a grizzly bear is going to eat us. I was lost. And I wasn't capable of finding my way out. And the consequences of my failure could have been death. So I made a confession of faith that I was finite and I needed someone infinite to come and help me that day. And through a miraculous series of just guidance along the way, God brought us back to safety. It's a long story, I won't tell it, but God brought us to safety. I needed someone who was the way, the truth, and the life. And he met the need that day. And he meets, meets our needs in life with any consequence that comes our way that we call sin. 
missing the mark, being on the right, wrong way, or not doing the things we ought to do. He's the way, the truth, and the life. In Romans 10, it says, If we confess with our mouth and believe that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him the dead, you'll be saved. That was my confession that day. I needed to be saved. You know, we complicate salvation too much. Sometimes we, we add things to it, to it. You know, it's very common in our culture today to have people pray a sinner's prayer, and there's nothing wrong with that, but you find no example of that in Scripture. It's just the custom that we do today. What's important is that we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, and we will be saved. We can complicate it, but we shouldn't. Now, leading a Christian life is complicated and it's challenging, but we need salvation as a starting point for leading that Christian life. And as we lead that Christian life, we're going to still have to have a deal with the problem of sin, aren't we? John 1.1, 1, 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. The same grace that was necessary to bring us to a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ is the same grace that's necessary, the same forgiveness, the same atonement, the same work of Christ in dying for our sins. It's necessary. So we actually need a Savior every day of our life, not at the beginning of the journey. But throughout the journey, we need a Savior in our life. Psalms 91. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. I remember reading a story in National Geographic years ago where they had a forest fire in Yellowstone. And one of the rangers came through the devastation after, and he saw a bird laid out on the ground. The bird had been charred in the fire. And he just took his foot and sort of tossed the bird, flipped it over, and out from under the mother bird ran her baby birds. Three little live baby birds that that mother bird had given her life to protect with her wings. She insulated them from the fire. And we have a God who has provided a Savior for us who will cover us with his wings and protect us and save us from the fire or whatever other devastation that might come to our life. Do you know him as a Savior who covers you with his wings? <clears throat> Third relationship I want to look at is that of a father and a family. One of the greatest blessings in life is to have an almighty, all-powerful, all-loving, heavenly father. I hope you know that. I hope you've experienced that. Salvation results in us being his children. John 1, yet to all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We're joint heirs with Christ. He's our elder brother. Adoption theology, Paul covers it in Romans and Galatians and Ephesians. We get adopted into the family of God. And a father delights in his children because they're his children. Story of Tad Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's son. He was just about nine or ten years old. The Civil War had started. It was at that point where it looked like the Southern troops were going to invade Washington. Lincoln was meeting with his generals in a crisis meeting. Things looked bleak. In runs Tad into that room with what Tad thought was the biggest problem in the universe. 
And he got his daddy's attention. And Abraham Lincoln told those generals, wait just a minute, I've got to take care of my son's problem. You know, the God Almighty, the King of the universe, he can take care of our problem when we run into his throne room. And he doesn't have to give anyone less attention so that he can give us attention. He's capable of doing that. But we, as his child, as his son or daughter, can run in. Now, when we're disobedient, there's a problem. Discipline is needed. But he never forsakes us. He's always there for us. Many of us enjoy the privileges of being in the family of God, being a child of God. Sadly, we have a problem with immaturity sometimes. Sometimes we go to him just to want things that we may not need, might be harmful for us, or sometimes we just want our own way. You ever had a child like that? You probably were a child like that. We just want our own way at times. God has to deal with us about that. In Hebrews 5, we were just studying it last night, Bert and I in our Bible study, uh, the writer scolds the readers of the Hebrew letter about their immaturity, that they just were stuck on milk and they needed solid food. They needed to grow in their faith and they weren't growing their faith. But God still calls us his children, but he does want us to grow up. He wants us to go further in the relationship with him. So, do you know him as creator? Do you know him as saver? And do you know him as your heavenly father? But that's not enough. He wants that, those relationships to challenge us to go to a deeper relationship with him. And that relationship is that of a Lord and a servant. Jesus did not come into this world simply to be a sweet, precious baby in a manger. It's an important story. It opens our hearts. Jesus didn't come into this world simply to be the innocent Lamb of God to take away our sins and simply to be our Savior. Jesus didn't come in the world simply to be the one we run to when we're in trouble. Jesus came in the world to be king. To be king. Either we allow him to be king. See, at this point in time in history, he allows us to that, let that happen. To be king and ruler of our lives or we try to be ruler of our lives or we let the things of this world be the ruler of our lives. There was a bumper sticker years ago when bumper stickers were around. Some of you don't remember those things, but there were bumper stickers that got popular for a period of time. There was a bumper sticker that says, God is my co-pilot. It wasn't long before another bumper sticker came along and said, if God is your co-pilot, move over. That God doesn't want to share the ride and to just be there to endorse what we do and where we drive. He wants to take control of our lives. Jesus came to be king. Matthew 24 says, For then who is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of his servants and his household to give them food in the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Parables of Jesus at one act after another talk about a master and a servant. And it's clear who's the master. It should be clear who's the servant. That's our job, to be the servant. Jesus expects to be our master. 
Luke 19, well done, my good servant. His master replied, because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of sin cities. It's sort, ten cities. It's sort of like a foreshadowing of the future in heaven when we will receive our rewards for being good stewards, good servants. As God's children, he expects us to follow his will because his will is good for us. Not because he wants to be a tyrant, ruthless leader, demanding his own way. He wants his will for us because it's good for us. He loves us. He knows what's best. Father knows best. I show up, many of you are too young to remember. Good old show on television back when they had good television. Father knows best. Hebrews 5, 9. He, Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. I remember my children uh, growing up. There was a, this, this, this episode, totally unplanned, but a child had sort of made repeated mistakes and I was having to discipline for him. And discipline was, you know, sit down and talk to him always first, find out what's going on. And in the midst of that, I just said, I don't want you to be sorry. I want you to be good. I want you to obey because I think I know what's best for you. And this is not best for you. To obey is better than sacrifice. We see that first in 1 Samuel chapter 15 where Saul presumes upon himself to make a sacrifice to the Lord because Samuel hadn't gotten there when he thought he should. And uh, Samuel shows up and says, you know, Saul, that was not your responsibility before God. You disobeyed. And that's going to come back to haunt you. Your disobedience, your rebellion against God and God's ways. To obey is better than sacrifice. You know, the, the word Lord in Scripture occurs some 575 times. It's the most common title for God is Lord. We're clearly supposed to understand him as Lord. In Romans chapter 9, there's this illustration of the clay on the potter's wheel and how the potter knows what the clay shape should be. And he uses his hands to shape that life. That's us. We're on the potter's wheel. We're the clay. And the potter should know. We don't want to say, I'm a little teapot short and stout. Here's my hand on my spout. I want it over here. I want two handles. The potter knows those things. And we're supposed to submit to him. To allow that to happen. He created us as our creator. He saved us as our savior. He adopted us as his own. As our heavenly father. Ought we not to honor him. Also as lord of our life. Obedience is better than sacrifice. If you love me. This is John 14. This is Jesus last discourse with his disciples. Before going to the cross. If you love me. You will obey me. Obey what I command. If you love me, obey me. If that wasn't important enough, he says it a few verses later. Whatever, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he's the one who loves me. You notice the motivation for obedience? It's not burdensome. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He wants us to be motivated by his love for him to obey him. In 23... Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teachings. You think it's important enough that he has to keep saying it? And then he prays it two chapters later. He prays it that we obey him. I was really prompted to revisit this 
type of relationship, this lordship, this king relationship with Jesus this Christmas as I was studying the Christmas story. Let me just tell you that briefly in closing. In Luke chapter 1, it says, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is what Gabriel said to Jesus shortly as he was telling her that she would miraculously conceive and bear the Son of God. This is what he said this Son of God would be. He would be a king. From the very beginning of the announcement of Jesus in the New Testament, we see that Mary is going to have a king. We see this in the story of the wise men coming to Herod. The wise men had some kind of signs in the, sign in the heaven. They probably also had some kind of knowledge from the, the books of, of the Old Testament that were probably left in that part of the world from when the Hebrews there were captives. And they had knowledge of this and the prophecies and the signs in the heaven. And they come to Israel and they go to the capital city where you would expect the king to be born in the palace of the royal family. And they say, where is this king of the Jews? Herod, understanding this because he had knowledge of those prophecies as well, he goes to the priests and the scribes, the religious leaders, and says, where is the Christ, where is he to be born? The Christ, not just some person trying to usurp my throne and threaten me, but where is the Christ, the Messiah is the word that he uses there because he was familiar with the Old Testament prophecies, prophecies that said a king would coming that would rule. And now these wise men are saying that king is here. Herod was threatened. His rule as king was threatened. See, the thing is, Herod believed. But he didn't submit. His kingship was threatened by a new ruler, by someone wanting to rule his life and rule that kingdom. He, he believed that. But he didn't want to submit. So, so see, here's the problem. Uh, he, he went out and slaughtered all the male children under two in order to sort of get rid of it. He thought would get rid of this threat because he believed it was real. To take an action like that, he believed. The problem is believing without submitting. We can get to that place in our own lives where we believe and confess that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, but then we don't submit. We don't go on to practice the lordship of Christ and see him as king of our lives. And that's what he calls us to do. He didn't come to be a baby in a manger, just to be the innocent lamb of God, takes away the sins of the world, just to be the one we run to when we got a problem, just he came to be king. He came to be king of our lives. The consequences, you know the story of the prodigal son. He was rebellious. He left his father's kingdom and went out on his own. 
He willed to do his will and not his father's will. And we know the calamity that befell him. But he had a loving father who stood and looked for him and welcomed him with loving arms when he returned to him. And he came back into his father's kingdom to be cared for. When we, what is a kingdom? Best defined, I think best defined is where a king reigns. And at this point in history, God allows you to decide whether his son will reign over your life and whether then you will be in his kingdom or outside his kingdom. We can live saved, forgiven, hopefully on our way to heaven, but we can choose to live a life that mostly is outside his kingdom, Outside his blessing, outside his protection, outside his guidance, outside his intimacy and relationship. If you struggle in life, it might be for this reason. He's not king. Have you ever run across this, this initial? Have you ever seen it or read about it in history? For a long time in history, Christians used this abbreviation these initials at the end of their letter it was like saying sincerely Gene Rudd but instead of saying sincerely they wrote sincerely they wrote D-V it's a Latin phrase Dio Dio Valente for many many years Christians did that you know what Dio Valente means how's your Latin it means the Lord if the Lord wills comes out of James chapter 4 where James teaches us that we need to live our lives according to what God wills for us not our own wills we need to be submission submitted to the king of the universe and his son to have him lord of our life and we make our plans if the Lord wills not our wills be done but your will be done that's what DV meant in all those letters. It's a good practice to get back to, though no one today would probably understand it. But you can understand it, and you can live your life that way. Dio Valenti, if the Lord wills. Because his will is higher than ours and beyond understanding, but he will reveal it to us enough for us to live it in our lives. Do you know Jesus is king? Are you living in his kingdom? Let me just suggest something to you to help you. And I've been doing this for a long time now. And it helps me. You see, I'm a living sacrifice. And living sacrifices, they tend to squirm off the altar. We tend to crawl ourselves right off the altar where we submit ourselves to God. So every day I need to go back and resubmit, re-surrender my life. And I borrow my first line of my prayer, and I modify it a little bit every day, but... It has some common components to it. And I borrowed this from an old Hebrew prayer. It says, bless you, O Lord, King of the universe. I recognize and acknowledge him as King of the universe. And I give thanks and I give praise to him. And then always important to include, I say, Father, I surrender my life to you this day for your glory and to be a blessing to others. We are allowed at this point in time to have Jesus to be king of our lives. There will be a point in the future where every knee will bow, willingly or unwillingly. Now we can willingly accept God's will to trump ours, to triumph in our lives. And we can live for him. Dio Valente.
Amen? Let's pray. Father, I surrender my life to you this day for your glory and to be a blessing to others. For your king of the universe, and I want you king of my life. We thank you for Jesus, that he made this possible. It's his name we pray. Amen.